you are listening to Single Sirs. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Nama Blonder has a bold vision to change what good development can and should look like. And with that in mind, she co-founded Smart Density in 2017. Her professional work spans across planning and architecture. And by marrying the two disciplines, she brings a deeper and more realistic understanding of how municipal policies take physical shape. She's also the subject matter expert for the City of Toronto, expanding housing options in our neighborhoods committee, a board member of Kahila, an affordable housing provider. She also co-authored the Housing Affordability Report of the Ontario Association of Architects and served at the design review panel for the City of Burlington, where she provided urban design advice for development applications. Last but not least, Nama practices what she preaches and lives with her husband and child in a multifamily building in a transit accessible area of Toronto where the park is their backyard. So thank you very much, Nama, for being part of the show. I really look forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us who you are, what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? I'm an architect and urban planner, and I find ways, creative ways to help Toronto grow and be denser, if that's proper English. Maybe it's not. I think it is. Um, So why are you so adamant about the need to increase density in our cities? Oh, (laughs) that's that's an easy question. Toronto is growing and we need to be very clear on the vision we want it to be as Torontonians. Uh, it's growing and it cannot grow in a ratio of one family that lives in a, on one lot, especially not steps away from a subway station. That is a very expensive infrastructure to have just one family on one property. So is it only a cost issue or are there other, is- other issues at play as well? I moved to Toronto, that's a personal note, almost 10 years ago from Tel Aviv, Israel. Mm-hmm. And I believe it or not, almost 10 years ago, Toronto was my affordable option. Uh, Tel Aviv, the cost of living in Tel Aviv was unbearable to me. And, uh, and my husband and I decided to, to move to a more affordable city. Since then, Toronto is doing a very good job in becoming very unaffordable <laughs> uh, to so many of us. And I just, I'm very aware of the consequences of what happens to a city when uh, it becomes unaffordable and talent and, and next generation cannot see a future for themselves in that city. Yeah, I'm so glad you speak to that because how often I've gotten frustrated at what's happening in the city and the complete and absolute lack of foresight for all the residents that are expected to move to the city but are not being uh, advocated for, basically. There's no one at City Hall, as far as I can tell, at City Hall at at the provincial level or even federal level who's there to advocate for the 
future immigrants that we're expecting and are going to be an instrumental part of the society and the culture. And that's, to me, a critical oversight. What are your thoughts on that? You know, when I did, uh, so I'm, I'm an architect and an urban planner here in, in Toronto. And when I did my accreditation in urban planning, because, you know, in Europe, it doesn't really, um, it's a very North American division to to have planning separate separated from architecture. Mm-hmm. And I really like that concept that I, the planner also advocates and plan for future residents or those that their voices cannot be heard. Um, and it, it, it also means that they cannot be heard because they, you know, can't attend an open house. But it's also about the future residents of an area that the, the current very uh, strong voices are perhaps, you know, privileged homeowners that could, that have all the means to come and object a certain development. But those future residents are not around the, t- the table to to speak up. Yeah. Uh, so I really like that that concept uh, from my planning exam. And, and so you've talked about your frustration in living in Tel Aviv and, and be- it becoming more and more unaffordable. Have you seen any parallels between your experience in Tel Aviv and your experience in Toronto now that it's something similar is happening? I would say that it's not just about supply and demand. I really think that the condos that are being built could be a terrific option. I advocate to, you know, that cultural shift of not just owning a house with a backyard. There are options. And, you know, you think of any European cities and I owe any European city. And I always say there aren't any backyards in Paris. And yet you would probably love to raise your kids there. And it's not when I say it's not just about supply and demand. It's because the condos that are being built do not reflect the diversity of the market. So Mm -hmm. it's very much geared towards investors and not the end user. And as a result, we're getting the same type of module. Um, And, you know, I would, I I had the discussion with developers many times before, but I do believe, I do believe it's a missed opportunity from purely business opportunity that is being missed. Uh, It's not just, advocating for, you know, pie-in-the-sky idea. No, we are missing a a segment in the market that their needs are not being fulfilled and they're pushed to to even buy something, but out of the city. And just to clarify for the listeners, the segment you're talking about are families, right, with larger units? This is definitely a topic that is near and dear to my heart, but even generally, the diversity. Let's Mm -hmm. call it diversity. Needs that are just not being met because we need just range of units and, 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 and different types. And so to that point, the answer I've heard from developers and other people in the past was that they're just responding to the incentives and small units are the most, I guess, profitable model for them. Is that true? Is there, Or is there a way to still make their developments profitable and and bring to market a a more diverse um, uh, kind of catalog of units, so to speak? I have no problem with smaller units, with being profitable. I am a very strong believer that the private sector should drive the solutions in affordable housing. I'm not looking up to the government and asking them to solve uh, the affordability problem. I am calling, you know, from, let's say from this podcast, I'm calling up developers 
wake up, there is an, a business opportunity here that you are missing. And that business opportunity is, in this case, perhaps larger units that would would be a good solution for families. Because I do believe that millennials are no longer willing to commute for, you know, two hours per direction from work to home. Mm -hmm. I do believe millennials understand there's a trade-off between living in an urban center close to everything, that 15-minute neighborhood. And yes, I'm not saying it should be 2,000 square foot house on the 15th floor. So that is the trade-off. But right now, it doesn't exist. And let me tell you from a, you know, personal anecdote that we were looking for a three-bedroom condo for our growing family. And it was extremely hard to find. I'm not like exaggerating. It was so hard to find. We narrowed it down to maybe five buildings in the city mm-hmm. that could actually offer something that, you know, could work for family because so many of those units are actually more geared towards room uh, housemates. Um, yeah. And it shouldn't be so hard. It, it shouldn't. So many of our listeners know, uh, already know what the missing middle is, but um, can you talk a little bit about oh, it's, really, it's lack of, of um, the lack of missing middle being related to affordability and how um, the current policies maybe are addressing that or not addressing it and what we can hope to see in the future and also what would be the, in an ideal world the solution to that problem? I think, you know, tying in the missing middle to to my last sentence about alternatives and options and the missing, I see the missing middle, not just by its pure definition, and we will cover it just to make sure we are good professionals, but it's also about the missing middle for, you know, what is the options between buying a house and those who don't or can't find a condo. Um, So missing middle, just to cover the definition, we're talking about in Toronto's neighborhood. So if you're referring to the land use map of the official plan, we're talking about everything that is yellow. If you heard the term, the yellow belt in the past, Mm -hmm. and it's buildings up to four stories in height, but they will be multi-unit. So it will start in, you know, triplex, fourplex, et cetera. But, you know, anything that is up to low rise apartment buildings. So, you know, try to imagine or picture Montreal, right? Like the streets in Montreal are three, four stories high, but they are not housing one family. Each floor probably has a unit or or two. So when we talk about the missing middle, I just want to cover the definition in the most uh, accurate way possible. But it's also, it means the missing middle for income, right? What are the options between a house and a condo or um, in terms of unit sizes, definitely could be something between a house and a condo. So I think that this discussion about missing middle ties directly to our previous answer. Um, When we talk about the missing middle, I definitely see an opportunity there. I mean, look at Toronto, like for real. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of uh, changes in policy, the city is doing, I, I, I just wish it was faster, but the city is doing such a wonderful job uh, revising and really revisiting their policy and what can be done differently. Because for 40 years, all you could do is demolish a house and build a bigger house, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Those monster homes. And, and now the city is saying, okay, it's impossible that 70% of our land will be dedicated to single family house, houses. So 
it's, so it's about guidance. You're saying the city does a good job, and I'm not sure I share your opinion, but you're the expert. Can you summarize what you've seen since you moved to Toronto that's moved in the right direction? What are all the, uh, a summary of the changes that are, are addressing that issue? Well, it's not since I moved to Toronto because all of this discussion is fairly new. If you would, would have come to the city, let's say three years ago, with a multi-unit development with asking to be exempted from parking, they would probably, you know, showed you the door, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the fact that we are, and, and so many of our projects are zero parking, especially, I mean, not just everywhere, but all of our projects are near transit to begin with. Uh, so making, asking for zero or to be exempted for parking makes a lot of sense, but that is a huge, huge shift in even talking to the planning department two years ago, that couldn't have been on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so the parking requirement, which are, they're leading very massive changes. There. Cause that's been removed entirely. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah from condos. Mm-hmm. And they actually now have, instead of minimum requirements, they have maximum requirements. So you're not even allowed to, in some areas to exceed, ex- to, to, to exceed these, uh, these parking requirements. So do you think we're going to see any condos with zero or very little parking at all? Oh, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. And whenever I go to a community open house and I even, you know, I say it on myself, I live car free. And, you know, I get two kind of responses. Those who live exactly the same lifestyle as we do and like, okay, what's the big deal? And those who say, do you expect us to believe that families could live without a car? So yes, I expect you to believe. If we want a sustainable and affordable future, it has to be car-free. Also, the city of Toronto has a goal that within five years, every ride within the city will be by public transit. So zero car use within the urban core in five years. Um, So yeah, our developments should reflect that. Absolutely. So you're asking me what else I see. So this is a major change. Uh, The entire missing middle policy, think about it, that is, it needs to be very uh, bold leaders, I would say, Mm -hmm. to lead such a change that affects 70% of the city's area. Um, If it's too small, too slow, I, I would say so. But also at the same time, it's happening. And that is the most important thing. Yeah, that makes sense. So I've heard, um, and that could be wrong, but maybe you can confirm that as of today, we're missing hundreds of thousands of units to cover all the housing needs, not even talking about what's needed in the future. Um, Is that correct? And how are we going to fix that? I have a feeling we heard it from the same resource, uh, but uh, it makes sense. It makes sense. Right now, you know, there's a little bit of irony that it takes us, the city, it takes the same period of time to get a building approved and to build that building. So it takes you around three years to get something approved and three years to build. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a little bit ironic, if you ask me, like, how could it be that something that is uh, <laughs> such a physical, uh, you know, heavy, heavy lifting uh, takes the same time as approving it. 
So we are definitely, the, the process is not smart enough, it's not efficient enough. Um, we are, you know, we inherited uh, Jane Jacobs' concepts of community engagement that lead this city into, you know, not only giving them the power of, of living in a single family home, steps away from the subway, but also dictating that nothing else could ever be built in that neighborhood just for the sake of neighborhood character or neighborhood stability, a word that I really hate. So um, that is definitely a problem. Well, the neighborhood car character argument is such BS for NIMBYs to, to not have. What frustrates me about that is that these are by and large people that have been living in those neighborhoods for a long time and moved in when it was really affordable. Yeah. But they don't think of the fact that their retirement may, might be secure because their real estate is worth a lot, but the people who are trying to move into the city don't have that opportunity. And I find that so selfish. A few years ago when um, that famous writer came out against a condo down our street, uh, what's her name? Margaret Atwood. I was so mad because it's, it's just such a privileged position, uh, not position, opinion that completely discounts the fact that there are people who are not in that position and still need to be in the city to just make it work. Like we need people, we need workers, we need people to make things operate and work the way they should. Um, that was so frustrating to me. Um, there was, or there is a, a report on housing affordability that has just come out or is about to come out. Uh, what do you think of that? Have you have you gotten your hands on it or on the? At I, least the I don't believe it was uh, publicly released yet. I was asked several times to to be quoted on it, and I said I, I haven't seen the the final uh, product yet. But uh, I read the article on CBC of what the some of the high level thoughts or or recommendations this report is going to have. So for the listeners who who, don't, who have no clue what we're talking about, this is a task force, an affordability task force. Um, by the by, Premier Ford, or that should advise to the Premier, and it's about general affordability, so not necessarily deeply affordable, you know, mm -hmm. shelters for people who experience homelessness, but general affordability. Um, I have to say that I think they did a really great job. Some of the things there about you know the zoning and what should be allowed as of right and expedite approval process. And, and I'm not surprised because that committee was by professionals who know and, and experience it firsthand and understand the problems. Mm -hmm. um, the question is politically how it's going to be implemented, uh, how the city is going to respond. So what I'm trying to say is having a committee with great ideas as much as they were practical, they were professional, they were by professionals, uh, but it's not enough, right? We need to know uh, how easy it's going to be to, <laughs> especially when it comes to the tension between the province and uh, and the city. So, so if you had to venture out and guess, how do you think that will influence uh, planning policies in the city? There are some things that are just too we're too damn late of not having them. Like the, some of the things of the approval process, especially when we talk about the missing middle, our current approval routes. They just are not um, well built or structured to to carry the missing middle. And what what I mean by that is that we just had uh, our a missing middle project approved by T Lab, which is the appeal body to uh, the C of A Committee of Adjustment. And the interesting part is that Committee of Adjustment said 
It's just not minor. They didn't have a problem with the project. They didn't have, the neighbors weren't even opposing it. The, the things that the, the neighbors had were so minor, we were able to, to solve it uh, just by having a conversation. And committee refused it because they said, this is just too much. Uh, we don't feel it's minor. We, there are too many viruses. Now that I know that there's a number that is a threshold for, uh, for the committee, mm -hmm. but uh, they felt it wasn't minor. Now, let me be very clear. If we want missing middle projects, they can't be approved by rezoning. It just, it's the, rezoning is just too long. It takes, you know, it's, it's political. It, it goes through council. It goes through several uh, submissions, several open houses. The community is involved at a level that is way beyond what missing middle could carry because you don't have the same. This is not a mid-rise or a tall building with 200 units. We're talking the missing middle. We're talking about, you know, 15 to 30 units in a very, very good scenario. Like the heaviest yeah. ones would be in that range. So we cannot expect missing middle projects to carry what a you know, higher density project could carry. Mm -hmm. So we need to really wake up and either we're going to guide committee of adjustment that this is indeed minor or have some sort of route that is as of right, which is something that the report also brought up that some main streets in the neighborhoods should be as of right. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So if you had a magic wand and you could make the rules, the ideal rules you want to build a great city, what would that look like? Wow. Okay. Um, definitely, I would say Toronto needs to be more compact or at least denser. Like there are sometimes I, I walk a lot. I live downtown and, you know, you're just saying like, I don't know, I live near Queen Street. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I don't know, especially in winter, I'm like, where is everybody? Where, <laughs> where did everyone go? This is yeah. Queen Street. So Toronto and especially post COVID and our main street, we need more people. We need to house this people in the downtown mm -hmm. um and i think density is the number one key aspect in in having any you know vibrant streets that we all dream of um and and i do believe it i do believe that density without density you you have nothing not businesses could not thrive our streets won't be as nice as we want them mm -hmm. to be so it's really about how we do that. And, you know, we called our company Smart Density because obviously it's not just about the numbers. It's not just about shoving people uh, into places. But Toronto is not Toronto That's is not there yet. It's not dense at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In, Thank you. I grew up in a small town. I mean, outside of a small town that by Toronto standard is tiny, yeah. but it still had twice the density of Toronto. Uh, so it was a tiny, tiny urban core, but we still had like six to 12 stories buildings everywhere and very walkable streets. And, you know, we, it was the example of the 15 minute city and it worked really well. So yeah. I think Toronto is a lot to, um, a lot to do in that regard. Um, I agree. Uh, I recently read an opinion piece claiming that Canadian architecture is really bad. Um, I think it was in the Walrus. Uh, what do you make of that claim? And do you think that has an influence on housing affordability? Okay, let me see how I'm going to answer that. Um, I, read, I read the article very, very briefly. I, 
I don't think Canadian architecture is bad. Let's let's take it to to other places. Um, I do think uh, that there are many things that could be done from urban design perspective and the way we design streets and buildings that is that there is room for improvement. Uh, and let's take, for example, I don't know, tall building design. You know, the human eye. Really, it's it's very easy for the human eye to catch something that is highly repetitive. So when we don't pay enough attention, for example, the design of tall buildings and make it highly repetitive because it's easier, cheaper, more efficient, um, we get something that makes us feel uncomfortable as human beings, like without even being able to say what it is. Yeah. It makes us feel like we're looking at something that is unnatural because in, in nature, there's nothing that repeats itself even twice. Yeah. Right? Or the patterns that you find in nature are not as um, obvious as you, what you'd see in man-made structures. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that is one of the things in, in tall buildings today. Um, I think Our code, the Ontario Building Code, is one of the most restrictive ones in the world, mm-hmm. um, making it very hard for even the most talented architects um, to really be creative. Uh, we're now, you know, advocate to reduce the one of the code requirements for. Let's let's put it that way: every unit has to have two staircases, which limits dramatically the options and alternatives you can do in many of the missing middle projects. Mm-hmm. Um, There's been a lot of talk about that lately, haven't there? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it, it's not my initiative. I just want to give credit to uh, to the right people, but um, um, it's our not our initiative, but I think it's very smart. Uh, so that is another example. Um, what, what do you, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I should ask you, what else did you read in that article that we should discuss? Um, I, I've always thought of Canadian architecture. It's not necessarily bad, and there's certainly a lot of talented architects. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it's pretty. It, it's not of a really high quality. A lot of it is either very cheap or very repetitive, or like. Um, and I think good design, in my mind, doesn't always have to be expensive because if you think of If you think up or create buildings um, before you start digging uh, to build a foundation and you and you think of them in creative ways, there is always a, a creative, effective solution to any problem, I, I'd like to believe at least. And I think most of Canadian architecture is not even trying. It's just mm-hmm. using kind of tried and true solutions to problems that could benefit from being looked at from a different perspective. Um, and, and I think to be fair to Canadian architecture, it's, it's getting better. I'd say in the last 10 years, maybe it's, it's, you've seen, I've seen more interesting projects and maybe developers trying more daring things. So there is from what I can tell an improvement, but I think, um, cause the Canadian cult- culture to be perfectly honest is very conservative, right? It's, it's about not rocking the boat, not standing out too much, not trying things that may be a bit innovative or novel and, and untested. And granted it's a challenge in this climate because it's a very tough climate to build in, to try new things and crazy things, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. And I, I would like to see more of that being tried on a regular basis. I also think it's kind of hard to judge because 
Your, the volume of new building is insane. Like if you visit, you know, just before COVID, I was in Madrid and Lisbon. The, the, these cities are not getting the same amount, not even a fraction of the amount of the, the volume of building of new buildings that we're getting. Yeah. At the set, so it's hard to it's hard to judge because or hard to compare because of the volume. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what I am saying is how much the private sector bottom line is affecting design, right? Like you don't have that. uh, Everything is very under pressure. And, and then you sometimes get these external architects coming and building a one-off What you know, it it was big in King West or even the, um, uh, the Vancouver based architecture for honest And then all of a sudden the market wakes up and say, you know, so sometimes we need that, you know, push uh, that outsider push to raise the bar. That's how I feel. But it is really hard to compare because of the volume of new buildings that are being built here. Yeah, Um, yeah, you have a good point. It's true that I've I've been living in Toronto for, well, almost 17 years now. And uh, (laughs) it's almost been nonstop construction the whole time. I remember I moved to the States between 2007 and 2010. So there was two and a half years where I was gone. And when I came back, the city looked physically different. It was in two years. It was impressive. So I can only imagine someone who like maybe left in 2005 and came back in 2015, how much (laughs) it would have been different. Yeah. Um, So so we're getting towards the end of the questions I have for you, but can you tell us about the mini mid-rise? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the mini mid-rise is a concept we developed in uh, here at Smart Density. And uh, you, uh, the listeners should really Google it because it's pretty provocative uh, image that we produced that caught a lot of attention, probably more than I ever intended it to have. Uh, we also won the Ontario Association of Architects Award for this concept. It's mm-hmm. basically, we said, you know, 11 years ago, the city of Toronto came up with the mid-rise building design guidelines. And yeah, Yet, you know, it's been 11 years and you don't really see, I mean, you see, of course, some really nice examples, but let's say the city hasn't changed itself uh, with mid-rise buildings. And and one of the reasons that didn't happen is because it's really difficult to, the the, the big sites, corner sites on main streets were already taken and and built. Now you're really left with an assembly of, you know, five, six, seven, eight properties in order to get to the frontage that you need for a mid-rise building. So we said, what if we take the mid-rise buildings, but we just apply them on a single lot, not an assembly that gets you a hundred feet of frontage, Mm -hmm. but will get that single lot. Uh, What if it's just, you know, the image, by the way, is 12 feet uh, <laughs> 12 feet wide because we went to the extreme. But what if 20 feet, 25 feet? How would that look? Um, so that's the mini mid-rise. Um, we presented it to the city. The city really liked it. Uh, zero parking again because the main streets are already very well connected to transit. Uh, so imagine streets like Bloor, Dundas, College, that the policy of the mid-rise building design guidelines was supposed to, you know, take to be more successful there. Um, so that's the mini mid-rise for you. Yeah. Um, the, a friend of mine designed something kind of similar. It was um, uh-huh. called the Hilo Hybrid by Fader Studio. Have you heard about it? No, Hilo. 
Yeah, it was a, a, a infill mid-rise type building. I think it was five stories. Uh-huh. Um, but very similar because I'm just looking at your mini mid-rise on your website and comparing to what they have. Okay. Uh, I'll send it to you, but it's interesting to see that both of you have come to similar design solution independent, independently. Yeah, you see, it just means probably that it's really obvious and should happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they've been trying to push hard to get people to build it. But as you know, it's very challenging to get all the people to get on board and then to get the approvals. So um but it's a, it's an interesting parallel. Um, so for the people who are interested in, in these issues and, and would like to get involved in building a better, denser, more human-friendly city, what is the one thing you would recommend them to do? Uh, go to open houses and advocate against those NIMBYs. <laughs> That's very good advice. Um, any last thoughts or ideas you'd like to, uh, to share before we wrap up? Um, not really. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I share thoughts, videos, and stuff on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. Uh, yeah, that 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 was me. I'll be sure to put all of that in the links. Uh, I want to thank you very much for being so generous with your time and, and uh, your great answers to the questions. And uh, I look forward to the next conversation. Thank you. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.